sorry about that. So just a reminder, there are still some invitations for next Sunday. If there's someone you would like to invite to hear about Jesus, either at our Good Friday service or Easter Sunday, invitations are at those tables uh, by the doors where you uh, will leave the auditorium. John chapter 6, verses 25 to 71. This is a challenging passage, first of all, because it's too long, but second of all, because there's some really challenging things in this passage. In fact, this is one of those passages where we're going to ask the question to Jesus himself, why Jesus? Why are you saying the things that you're saying in this passage? So I don't know how much of it you caught as you read, and we didn't read the entire passage, but there are some really challenging things that we find in John chapter 6, 25 to 71. And the first question that I would want to ask to Jesus is this, why was Jesus critiquing his audience? So look at a few verses with me so you can see this. This is not generally how we're taught to win friends and influence people. So here's a crowd of people who've gathered to Jesus, but notice some of the things he says to them. Verse 26, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In other words, what Jesus is saying to the crowd here is, you're only here for the food. Let's just be honest, you're only here for the food. That's what he's saying in verse 26. Now look down to verse 36. He says, as I told you, you have seen me, and still you do not believe. These were people who had come to Jesus. They'd, they'd, they'd flocked to Jesus in large crowds. Some had witnessed miracles. Some had asked for miracles. Some had been fed in the miracle of the feeding in the early verses of John chapter 6. But here's Jesus just flat out saying to them, you don't really believe. Now look down to verse 43. As Jesus begins to say some things that the people found hard to believe. He starts to speak of himself as the bread that had come from heaven. And they begin to grumble and say, hey, we know who this guy is. His dad's a carpenter. We know his mom. He's from around here. How can he say, notice verse 42, how can he say, I came down from heaven? Jesus rebukes them as they struggle to believe this and says, stop grumbling among yourselves. Look down to verse 64. Here he is again, assessing the genuineness of the crowd. He says to them, there are some of you who do not believe. And then at the very end of the chapter, when Peter declares his faith, the faith of the 12, even here Jesus offers a kind of rebuke when he says in verse 70, I have, have I not chosen you, the 12, yet one of you is a devil. Jesus, why are you saying these things? And then the second question applies to a certain portion of this text, which begins at around verse 50. Why was Jesus purposely saying things that were hard to accept? We saw the one example where he says, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They had a hard time believing that. But then in verse 50, he begins to say some things that not only were hard to believe, but were offensive. Because here Jesus is going to begin to talk about how the people needed to eat him, to eat him like he was bread, to eat his flesh. Notice verse 53. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Verse 55, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Later in verse 37, the one who feeds on me will live because of me, the end of verse 58. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now there's some wonderful truths in there, but it's, it's contained in this idea which for Jewish people would have been completely offensive. In the Old Testament, the Jewish people were taught that even if they were eating legitimate food, you're having your steak, they were never to eat the meat with the blood in it. You remember this? When they slaughtered an animal, they had to make sure they drained the blood out. Then when they cooked the animal, they had to make sure they cooked it. No, no medium rare, no blue steak here in, 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 for the people of, of Israel. And yet Jesus, knowing that history... He, of course, was the author of the Old Testament law, and knowing how difficult these words would be, he literally uses this metaphor for faith and salvation, that you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So we should ask the question, why Jesus? Why would you purposely say something that was hard to accept? So here you are critiquing the crowd because they don't really believe, and then on top of that, you say things that make it hard to believe. Do you see that? Why would Jesus act in this way? It's a really important question. This question, by the way, fuels the way that I preach, intend to preach God's word. This, this question fuels the way that I interact with people. For example, someone who is on the verge of trusting Christ, showing interest and wanting to know more about what it means to be saved. It fuels how I'm going to address that person in that moment. And here's the thing, I'm not going to make it easy for you. I'm not going to do what many churches in North America have done in the past 50 years where we've watered it down to this idea of asking Jesus into your heart or simply praying a kind of prayer. And I have a relative who, who is an example of that, by the way, who when was, was questioned about her standing with Christ and her standing with salvation simply said, well, I prayed a prayer at camp years ago. And that was it. For her, that made her believe that that's all she had. She just, it was just praying a prayer. It was as simple as that. No evidence of salvation in her life, no evidence of love for Christ or desire to follow him, but I prayed a prayer. And someone had told her, that all she had to do was pray that prayer. She's good. She's got her ticket. And that is not the way that Jesus presented the good news. This question needs to fuel our understanding of the Christian faith and our understanding of how we do ministry and how we invite others to this faith. So why did Jesus critique his audience? Why did he accuse them of not really believing? And why did he purposely say things that were so difficult to accept and here's the first answer. Jesus was sifting out false followers from genuine ones. He was sifting false followers from genuine ones. Jesus did this all the time. In fact, go and find in the Gospels some of the hardest things that Jesus said. You find this in the Gospel of Luke. I think it's chapter 14. Where he challenges people and says, if you really want to be my disciple, you've got to hate your father and mother, meaning love Christ so much that your love for anyone else in your life looks like hatred. You've got to give up everything you have. 
You've got to take up your cross and follow me. You know when he said that? He said that when a crowd had gathered. Some of the hardest statements that Jesus said, he said when there was a crowd. And at the moment when many of us would have been puffed up with pride, would have been thinking, how do I keep them here? How do I keep them you know, loving me and accepting me and following me? Jesus did the opposite because he knew the heart of mankind. He's sifting false followers from genuine ones. Number two, Jesus was warning false followers. Here is the grace of God. Here is the love and the compassion of Jesus that when he is confronted by someone who doesn't really believe, maybe they think they do, he's actually lovingly warning them, compassionately helping them to understand what it means to truly believe and find salvation in him. And then number three, Jesus, as he was doing all of this, was also teaching his genuine followers about salvation. And in this passage, even though there's hard words, we find some beautiful statements about what it means to be saved and the benefits and blessings of being saved. And so we come to this question here this morning, and, and I want us to do exactly what Jesus was doing here in John chapter 6. I want us to be asking ourselves the question, am I for real? Have I understood the gospel as Jesus understood it and taught it? Remember what we saw in John chapter 2. Do you remember that funny title I had uh, last month about Jesus? <clears throat> there was a scandal and a riddle and a scruple. Do you remember that one? You probably don't remember it. But the scruple was this verse. Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He knew what was in each person. That verse is a foreshadowing to what's happening now in John chapter 6. Jesus knew there were people who said they loved him, said they liked him, said they would follow him, but Jesus knew their faith was shallow, incomplete, and false. And so we asked this question. I want you to realize, you know what? Sorry, I didn't put the verse on the screen there for you. Paul said something similar. This is an astounding scripture that many of us would tend to gloss over in a church like Wallenstein, where Paul, writing to a church writing to believers. Now, probably some of them weren't genuine, but for the most part, this was a genuine church. And in 2 Corinthians 13, he says to this church, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? This is such beautiful language that's gonna relate to what we find in John 6. Don't you realize that Jesus Christ is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Some Christians are offended by a sermon like this where we would call people to examine themselves to ensure that they have truly trusted in Christ, that they are genuinely saved. The Apostle Paul did exactly this in his ministry, and so we're going to do it this morning. And we're going to ask ourselves this question, are we, are you, am I for real and as we go through this passage, we're going to see how Jesus laid out a number of tests for his crowd, his audience, to demonstrate whether or not their faith in Christ and their salvation was true or false. So we start in verse 26. Here's the first test. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, 
You are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Now this first test reminds me of what we heard last week from Phil Barnes. It is this test of physical or spiritual. It, it comes down to the question of you know, what, what is characterizing our life and what gets me out of, the bed, out of my bed in the morning and what is the purpose and the goal of my life. For most people who live in this world, the simple an obvious goal of their life and of moment by moment as they live, it's, it's just one thing. It's, it's physical, it's material. I live moment by moment. In some places in the world, it's simply survival. It's where's my next meal coming from? In our part of the world, it's, it's not about survival. We are so wealthy that we live for physical pleasures and material things. So here Jesus is calling out the crowd. He says, you're only here for the food. Remember that one? You're only here for the food. You're not here because I'm offering you salvation of your soul. You're not here because I'm telling you eternal truths about God. You're here for the food, is what he's saying. Notice verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. He's saying, don't just focus, don't just be preoccupied with the material things of this world, whether it's something that you need to survive, which obviously we have to pursue those kinds of things, or as we have in our culture where we pursue pleasure, physical and material pleasure, and we want more, and our, life is, our lives are characterized by this drive for physical and material things rather than for spiritual things. That is the first test. Now, that's... That's a difficult test for us living here in North America with all that we have. I wonder, this would be really interesting, and I'm not trying to make any of us feel bad here, but if we went out into the parking lot and took an evaluation of each vehicle that was in our parking lot right now, I know some of you are thinking, yeah, well, you're not gonna get much out of mine. But what if we just simply, I mean, just, just our vehicle, and this church and the, and the vehicles that are in our parking lot, we just simply evaluated, added up, what would be the total be for, for, for the vehicles that are here, right here in this parking lot in this church? We would be shocked and amazed. Now, do we need a vehicle in our culture? Yes. But is that the thing that drives me? Is that what my life is about? Is that who I am? I want more, I want bigger, I want better. Or is my life characterized by a drive, a longing for spiritual things? What would that mean? It would mean, I, I don't want, prim primarily, I don't, I don't want the material things of the world. I want God. I want to know him. I, I want to please him. I want to see this world, not through simply materialized, but through spiritualized. I want to see the people in my school, in my workplace, the way God sees them. I want to see them for their spiritual needs. And I want to do something about that. I want to live for the things of God. I want to live for eternal things that truly matter, which is the souls of human beings, not simply for material things. That's the first test that Jesus lays before his crowd and us this morning. 
So we can say this, genuine salvation requires recognizing my spiritual need. I don't just come to Jesus as my grand vending machine and give me more material things, give me what I want and need. We come to Jesus because we have this desperate spiritual need where because of our sin, we're separated from a holy God. Number two, genuine salvation results in, as Jesus says here, eternal life, which is spiritual life. And notice here we find, and this is a beautiful de depiction of salvation, it is a gift from God, and it unites me with God. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. For us to have eternal life means that we have been united with the God who is that life. Genuine salvation results in eternal spiritual life. It's a gift from God. It unites me with God. What is the drive of your life, physical or spiritual? Number two, notice in verse 28, the second test Jesus lays out here. And it begins when the crowd asks him a question. They asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Notice the language here. What must we do? Emphasis on us. Emphasis on doing. Emphasis on works. What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answers, the work of God. Now notice he's using their language. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. This uh, is primarily a question of religion versus faith. It's the second test that he lays before us to test whether we are authentic believers or not. Religion or faith. The people who asked this question were people who had been raised in the Jewish system of religion. Now, it was a, a religion that God had ordained, but it was not a religion that ultimately could save them. It was a religion that was meant to show them their need of salvation. And out of the Jewish faith, and the Jewish nation would come a savior, an ultimate savior, who would be the fulfillment of all of their laws and all of their sacrifices, which were only temporary, but pointed to the ultimate savior, Jesus. But because they had been raised in that system and they falsely thought that they could actually earn their salvation, their right standing with God, you can see the mindset. It's exactly what the rich young guy in a different story in the Gospels, came to Jesus and said the very same thing. What must I do to have eternal life? This is religion. Religion is the intent, the idea, that I can please God and I can earn a right standing with God, or use the word salvation. I can earn my salvation by being religious. Religion, of course, is a man-made system that creates a bridge for me to earn God's favor. We understand as followers of Jesus that there's only one bridge and that's Christ himself. He and he alone can make us worthy to become the children of God, to stand in his presence, to spend eternity with him. These people thought they could achieve it. See, the other problem with religion is it's, as some people would say, it's transactional. Religion places God in my debt because, God, I've been very religious. I've been very good. I've done the right things. I've 
obeyed all the right commandments. I've, I've been very religious, so God, you owe it to me. You owe it to me, God. That's transactional. That's a false gospel. It's not a gospel at all. We do not come to a God who is in our debt because we've been so good and so religious. That's not possible. To believe that is to believe that God is way smaller and far less holy than he truly is. To believe that is to believe that we are far better and far more holy than we actually are. So here's the test that Jesus lays out. You think you can work your way to God? You think you can earn salvation? You think you can get it through religion? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe. Now you could argue and Paul does this in the book of Romans, that to believe is not a work at all, right? To believe is a kind of surrender where we throw up our hands to a God of mercy. We acknowledge, God, I have nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross we cling. This is what Jesus calls us to here when he says believe You can't do this. You can't earn this. It's it's totally outside of yourself. You need to fall upon the mercy of God. That is your only hope. And so genuine salvation rejects the idea that I can earn God's favor through religion. And genuine salvation requires faith, which is entrusting myself to Christ and his provision. We've talked in the past what true faith is. And our culture, and even many of us in evangelical churches, have twisted this word from its biblical meaning into a shallow meaning that distorts what it actually means. And we've done that by assuming that faith or belief is to simply agree. In my mind, intellectually, I think that's true. And that is not what biblical faith is. Biblical faith, and I I use this word carefully, is to entrust myself to God. It is a surrendering to him as my only hope. I place my life in his hands. I place my sin in his hands as the only one who can rescue me. That is what it means to believe, to trust, to set the weight of my life upon Christ alone. It's the second test, religion or faith. Number three, verse 31 There's another test that we find here in these verses. Notice what the people say. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus answered to them was this, very truly I tell you it is not Moses who's given you the bread. That's kind of interesting because they actually hadn't said anything about Moses. What they had said is that God gave the manna to their ancestors and Jesus, knowing their heart, knowing their minds, says it's not actually Moses who's given you the bread. So why did Jesus say that? Why did they say what they said? Why did Jesus say what he said? Well, it's this issue of association. This is Jesus recognizing that his audience, many of these people who weren't true believers, were resting their hopes upon being Jewish. You see that? See what they're saying here? Hey, it was our ancestors. My great, 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 whatever, grandfather was there in the wilderness he ate the manna and then Jesus recognizing they're they're pinning their hopes on Moses they could say uh, you know Moses was was our great prophet and we have Moses Moses wrote our scriptures 
Notice the emphasis here. They're putting hope in another man, but not in Jesus, not in God. So here Jesus is pointing out their false, their false faith, which was rooted in associations, who their ancestors were, the fact that they, they had Moses, the fact that they were Jewish. And he's going to call them out here and say, no, that's not actually what you need. What you need is a Savior. It is not Moses who's given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. Who's the true bread? The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. They were still thinking material. And these wonderful words, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. There's only one association that matters. And it's our association to Jesus Christ. So here's the test of authenticity. Associations or a savior. Have you ever spoken to someone about your faith and heard them say something like this? Well, I've been such and such all my life. And they name a church or they name a denomination. Or they start talking about their parents and their, my grandfather was a pastor. I've heard that one. And what they're doing is they're pinning their hopes on the fact that their parents, their grandparents were believers. They belong to a certain denomination. Maybe they've got the card or certificate that says so. There's only one association that matters for genuine salvation, it is our association, our connection to Jesus. Our personal association with Jesus. One of the things that worries me about a church like Wallenstein is we have third, fourth, fifth generation Christians sitting here. And my fear for some of us is we think that that's what gets us in. That's what, that's what makes it for me. I've been in a family of Christians for three, four generations. Yeah, but have you trusted Christ? Have you personally trusted Christ? Have you personally come to him and recognized that he alone is the bread of life? He alone is the one who provides all that you need for salvation and eternal life. Only Christ alone. So what do we learn from this test? Genuine salvation, not found in religious associations, but in Christ. And genuine salvation, as Jesus says in these beautiful words, provides permanent fulfillment of all that I truly need. What does it mean that he's the bread of life and that I will never go hungry, that he is, he is fulfilling my, my thirst and I will never again be thirsty? Again, he's not talking about material things. He's talking about that through salvation, he permanently, eternally provides all that I truly need as a human being. Test number four, resisting or responding. Notice verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. 
So here's the test in these verses. Resisting or responding? Resisting God or responding to God? Now notice verse 45. Jesus here quotes from the Old Testament with this expression, they will all be taught by God. Now I, I personally believe that there is, in a sense, there is a sense in which God shines his light to all. I actually saw that in John chapter 1. This is Jesus, this is the light, the true light that brings light to every man, every person in the world. And our computer's glitching here. There is a sense in which God reveals himself, in a sense invites everyone into the salvation that he offers. There is another sense in which God, we know through scripture, has sovereignly chosen those who will come to him. And he says that when, because of that, there is a drawing, an inviting, a wooing, and all who are truly his will respond to that invitation. So this is a really important question for us this morning. As we apply these questions to ourselves, this question of our own authenticity, we learn, learn these two things. Number one, genuine salvation is initiated by God who invites all and especially draws his chosen ones. He invites all, but especially draws his chosen ones. Notice here, it's all initiated by God. None of us get to heaven, find eternal life because we are so clever, so intelligent. No, it's because of God's grace and, and mercy. And genuine salvation requires that we stop resisting and respond to God's loving call. If we went around this room and shared testimonies, we'd hear so many stories of people who could say that there was a period of time in my life where God was pursuing me and pursuing me and I just kept being convicted and I felt the need to turn to Christ, but I just kept resisting and then one day, somehow God broke through my resistance, brought me to a place where I was ready to respond, you see. Somehow both things are true when it comes to salvation. There is this sovereign choosing of God where he knows those who are, are his chosen ones, and yet there is this responsibility of humanity to respond to the call that they hear. And genuine salvation requires that we stop resisting. So I ask you here today, resisting or responding? I suspect there are people here today, and you've probably been here for maybe for several weeks. You've come here before. You've heard the gospel before. You've heard about Jesus before. Something keeps drawing you back here, and you're not sure what it is, but the problem is you're still resisting. Praise the Lord that you're here, that you, you're hearing the voice of God moving in your soul. But stop resisting. Do you know what that is? That is God Almighty. It's the God who created you, the God who wants to save you, is speaking directly into your heart and mind. Why would you say no? Respond to the voice of God. And one last test comes from these strange verses about eating the flesh and drinking the blood of Jesus. And what does that all mean? It was provocative. Jesus intended for it to be provocative. But it was also addressing this question of self-reliance or Christ-dependence. See, it's, a, it's a really fascinating to think of this idea of eating flesh and drinking blood, particularly the flesh of Christ and the blood of Christ. 
And if you can get past the imagery, which is kind of revolting even to us, think about what Jesus is teaching us here. And I'm just going to turn that off if I could. What is Jesus teaching us? What he's saying to us is you alone, you in and of yourself have this desperate need, and what is it? Your desperate need is to have the life of God within you. So Jesus used this metaphor, this imagery of his flesh, his blood consumed. We all know that to be true, right? Like you are what you eat, right? You become what you eat. The stuff that you take into you nourishes you, literally becomes part of your cells, your blood, your skin. It's true, we are what we eat, and Jesus is saying, in kind of a simple way, that what you need, what you need profoundly to become part of who you are is me. By faith, you need to receive me. And my life, my person needs to become at the very core of who you are. And of course, the only way Jesus could ever come and reside within someone like me is he first has to deal with my sin. How could I ever be a temple that's worthy of the very presence of Christ unless he first deals with my sin? That's what Jesus has done through his death on the cross, through that blood that he's talking about. He, he can cleanse us from our sins. He places upon us his own righteousness, and he comes and lives right there inside of us. But here's the test. Hey, our world is full of people who say, I don't need that. In fact, the the dominant philosophy of our culture today is your savior is you. And all you need to do is find the real you that lives inside of you. And if you can do that, you hear this high school kids, university kids, this is Disney movies, this is everywhere. The answer you need is you. And the saving you need is there, right there, within you. You just got to find it. And that is the height of foolishness. To think that people like us have all that we need right there within us, and Jesus is saying it's not true. But let me tell you something. I am willing to become that thing that you need deep inside of you. I'm willing to come and be there, to reside, to be the life the relationship that resides right there within you. But the bottom line is this question, am I going to choose to rely on myself? Am I going to say, I've got this. I've got all that I need. I'm not that bad. He's saying, I'm a sinner. No, no, I, I, I am everything that I need. I am. And Jesus is saying to us, no, what you really need is me. He and he alone could ever say something that would sound to us so egotistical and yet as the son of God, as the savior of humanity, he can absolutely say this and it's true. Genuine salvation rejects the idea that the answer to my problems is found within me. And genuine salvation recognizes that our only hope is Christ himself abiding within us so that his life becomes our own. Isn't that an amazing truth of salvation? Christ within us. This is our hope. This is our only hope. This is our only salvation. Christ, by his mercy and grace, through his death and sacrifice, coming and residing in a sinner like me. The question is, will I truly believe? 
So the imagery of eating and, and drinking becomes that metaphor of what it means to believe. I entrust myself to Christ, just like when I shove something in my mouth and swallow, I'm showing a lot of faith in whatever that thing is. And so to have faith in Christ is to receive him, to entrust him to come and live within me and be my savior. As we come to the end of this challenging passage, notice in verse 61, aware that his disciples, notice the word he's using here, his disciples, perhaps not meaning the 12, but others who had joined themselves to Jesus as his followers, they were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And then notice verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What that means is the word disciple here should be in quotation marks. Because they were not genuine disciples. Genuine disciples will, will pass this one last test, which is perseverance. Genuine disciples will never fall away. They cannot fall away because God has chosen them. God has wooed them. God has made them his own. These were people who had said they were disciples. They said they loved Jesus. But when the going got hard, they turned their backs on him and followed him no longer. They were false. And then these gut-wrenching words as Jesus turns to the twelve in verse 67 and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter answers in verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So we fall into one of these two categories today. If you're here today, you're expressing a, an interest in the things of God, in Christ. But the question is, have you truly believed? Are you a disciple who will be permanent in your faith because God has made you permanent? Can you say what Peter says here? No matter what happens in your life, no matter the difficulties that you're facing, the doubts that you feel, will you stand on these words, to whom shall we go? There is no one else, there is nowhere else, there's no other church, no other religion, no other belief system except for you, Jesus. Can you say, we have come, I have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God? Are we genuine? We're gonna sing one last song. Jeff's gonna come and pray.